Good morning, everybody. Come stand with us. Let's worship together. Come on, sing it out. He's coming. He's coming on the clouds. Every chain will break, his broken hearts declare his praise. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring with power, he's fighting our battles. Every knee will bow before him. Our God is the lamb. For the sins of the world, his blood breaks the chains, and every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb, every knee will bow before him. To open up the gates, make way before the king of kings. The God who comes to save is here to set the captives free. For who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is lying, the lion of Judah. He's roaring with power, he's fighting our battles. Every knee will bow before him. Our God is the Lamb. For the sin of the world, his blood breaks the chains. And every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Every knee will bow before him. Who can stop the Lord Almighty?
give, give the Lord some praise this morning. Again, I'd like to welcome you this morning to church, whether you're here or online. Let's just, whatever's going on this morning, let's just shut it all off. Let's, let's just go to the Lord this morning and worship and just, just praise Him this morning.
Speak to us today in a different light, Lord God. I pray that you just use us this week, Father. I just thank you and praise you for everything you've done, everything you're going to do, Lord God. I pray that you just open our ears, our eyes, and our hearts that we will receive your word today in a different light, Father. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning again. Just take a few minutes, a couple seconds. Just wave at somebody. If you're at home, send a text, and we'll get ready for a word. tuned in on Thursday night or you were here with us, uh, you probably recognized uh, or, or recognized in this moment a little bit less of the trimmings that we had uh, over the last even month, but certainly on Christmas Eve. And uh, so this morning, this Sunday morning after Christmas, we're kind of pulling things back and uh, going to look at things in a little bit more simple light. So uh, we've cast a little ambiance for the morning as we have a conversation, and uh, as opposed to really uh, preaching a sermon this morning, we're going to look sort of in a devotional way at one of the great Psalms uh, of the Old Testament. Uh, but I want to begin this morning with a story, uh, and, and it's a story that takes place in the 1600s, uh, and, and it uh, concerns a pastor, and his name was Martin Reinkart. Martin Reinkart was born in 1586 in uh, Saxony, what is today known as Germany. And uh, he was the pastor of a small church in a, in a small town in Saxony uh, in, uh, during a particularly t- a tough time in, in human history. Uh, he was born uh, and, and was a brilliant mind. He was a musician and a theologian, uh, but ultimately wanted to go into the ministry and ended up as a Lutheran minister. And so here he is in Germany. He takes the pastorate of this church in a city called Eilenburg, Saxony. And the year after he takes the pastorate in this church, in this town, the Thirty Years' War breaks out. Now, for those of you that are students of history, you'll know that the Thirty Years' War was one of the most brutal and devastating wars in the history of, in particular, Europe. It really enfolded all of Europe, including the the Swedish and the Danes and and really the entire uh, entirety of, of Europe. For the German people in particular, uh, the Thirty Years' War was more deadly than both World War II and World War I. 
And so this pastor, he takes this pastor during this time at the outbreak of, of this war. And in the year 1637, Eilenburg, where he is pastoring, is a walled city. And so it's become somewhat of a city of refuge for the people of Germany as they retreat from the ensuing Swedish army. And the city becomes overpopulated. And in that year, along with the overpopulation, they bring with them the plague. And plague breaks out in the city and thousands upon thousands of people die. In the year 1637 alone, Martin Reinberg ends up doing, uh, Reinhardt ends up doing 4,800 funerals. 4,800 funerals in one year. Both uh, of the other ministers in town succumbed to the disease and the bishop in town fled the city. And so he is the only pastor and that includes his wife's funeral in the same year. It is an absolute dismal time. And you know, this morning, I want to kind of juxtapose the year that we've had, the year 2020, with 1637 in Martin Reinkart's city of Eilenburg, Germany. And not in such a manner to say, hey, don't think you've had it so bad. This is so much worse. That's not the reason that we want to, we want to juxtapose. And I'll get to that in a moment. And in fact, we want to recognize this morning that, that we've had our own losses here within the GBC family in 2020, both young and old, have died this year, gone home to be with the Lord. We lost in January uh, Aaron Matzdorf. Aaron Matzdorf was a kid who grew up here. He was in my Sunday school class. He was an Awana student, and he died uh, in January. But we also lost uh, Barbara Cole and Billy Ward. We lost our beloved Carl Shepard, who was at one time the custodian here at GBC. For those of you that remember that, we lost Patsy McLaughlin. Had a wonderful tribute to Patsy at Celebrate Recovery a few weeks ago. We lost John Kirby uh, over the summer. And just this fall, we lost our senior pastor for nearly two decades, uh, Bob McCoy. And you know, I dare say that, that as a church, we haven't had a chance to grieve those losses. We haven't had the chance in most cases to eulogize those who've lost. And I know that in many of your families, you've lost people that aren't necessarily connected to GBC. We've lost some extended GBCers like uh, Lauren Bomar just a few weeks ago, a 46-year-old mom of two teenagers who, who died of COVID-19 down south. Uh, Terry Carter died this year. And so there are a number of families within our church family that 2020 is a year of great grief. And I think a, a good portion of our church family is still grieving over the death of Bob McCoy that came so unexpectedly and so suddenly. And I don't have an answer to how we'll be able to have closure to that this morning, but I want to recognize that. I want to take time to um, just recognize the fact that this has been a hard year for many of you. That's to say nothing of those of you that have lost jobs, those of you that have struggled financially, those of you that uh, just the nature of this year and the isolation has uh, really been a, a wreaked havoc in your personal addictions and your struggles and your own sin. And also to say nothing of the stress and the anxiety that many in this congregation have, have faced. Now, I will say that, that I have seen that you have faced these things in community, that you have reached out and that the staff and elders and volunteers and, and uh, the missions committee even and all our small group leaders, that all these people within the church have made a real effort to reach out and to connect with those who might be prone to being isolated for one reason or another. 
Next week, we're going to look at uh, a lot of the really redeeming things and the exciting things that have happened this year. It's not been all bad, but I think it's appropriate as we wrap up a year to say it's been a challenging year, unique to other years, at least in the very least in that we've not been able to both celebrate the life of and grieve the loss of those who have died in our congregation. So we want to recognize that this morning. I want to let you know that we feel that. And if you need to still process that, I want to encourage you to reach out and do that. Well, back to Martin Reinhardt in Eilenburg, Germany in 1637. It's in the middle of this season, in the middle of the 30 years war, right about the time that his city becomes overwhelmed with the plague that he writes his most famous hymn. It's a hymn called, Now Thank We All Our God. Some of you know it. And I want to read to you just the first verse of this hymn. Again, bear in mind the loss of his own wife, 4,800 funerals, literally pestilence, plague, famine, and death by sword, so to speak. And it says this, his first verse of this hymn, written about 1636, he writes, Now thank we all our God, with hearts and hands and voices, who wondrous things has done, in whom this world rejoices, who from our mother's arms has blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. Now, how can this man, this Lutheran minister, write a verse where he talks about praising God with hearts and hands and voices, where he talks about the blessings of God in a particular year and countless gifts? How can he write that in a year of such devastating loss. I think the key is in the final line where he says, and still is ours today. What is he referring to? He's referring to God, the who, the whom, that he still is ours today. You see, Martin Reinhardt had his hope in God. His hope transcended the circumstances of his world at the time. A time which I would argue for, at least in in that part of Europe, was unprecedented even beyond our 2020, to use a well-worn 2020 word. Martin Reinhardt writes these amazing, amazing words. And so this morning, we're going to look at at a psalm. We're going to look at one of the great psalms of the Psalter. And our big point this morning has to do with the glory of God as king. Our message is entitled, Hope and Glory. And our big point this morning is this, is that when I seek the glory of myself, when I'm about my own glory, my world actually becomes very small. When I'm about the glory of the creation or the created order or other things, be it relationships or material things, whatever that might be, when, I, when that's what the glory that I'm seeking or elevating, I will be perpetually disappointed. And so I have to keep seeking and keep seeking and keep seeking. But when I am about seeking the glory of God, I will have hope in all things. And that's what we're going to see in this this psalm this morning. Excited to look at this psalm. I want to tell you a little bit about it before we pray and look at the, the passage itself. It's authored by David. It is the last of David's psalms in the Psalter. The last one he writes. And it precedes the last five psalms of the Psalter, each of which are hallelujahs. 
And so it very much sets up. It's the liturgical psalm that is designed to kind of prepare the people's hearts for these five hallelujahs. It's so it, for us, even this morning, it's a perspective psalm. It's a foundational psalm on which we can stand. It's a, it's a pattern psalm that helps us to, to, it sets a pattern that we can sort of follow inserting our own uh, countless blessings or gifts, as Martin Reinkart says. It is a psalm that reorients us. And so I think it's appropriate this morning for the end of 2020. I want to encourage you this morning uh, as I pray, or after I pray, probably more appropriately, uh, to text the word bulletin to the number that you'll see on the screen here. And that's how you'll see, uh, you can follow along with the message this morning. We won't have slides behind me other than the scripture itself. And so if you want to follow along, you can text bulletin to that number and, um, and pull, the, pull the bulletin up and follow along with us. Allow me to pray if, if I could and we'll, and we'll look at God's word. Lord, we come to you as a church this morning, Lord, with mi- mixed emotions, God. Lord, for some of us, 2020 has been a fantastic year or maybe the elements of it have been fantastic. Some of the things in our life, in our home have, have been really amazing. Relationships that have been deepened, time that has been spent. And Lord, and, and perhaps a, another home just a, just a row away in, in our church or just a home away in our online church this morning, it's been just devastating for us. Lord, we've suffered losses like we might normally do in a, in a calendar year of those who've, who've died and gone home to be with you. But Lord, we struggle with the inability to really have closure and have celebration and, have, and process grief and do the things that are part of how you've designed us to work in relationship and in community with one another. Lord, we grieve that, we struggle with that, and there's not an immediate resolution to that, so we place that before you as well. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your timeless, eternal word that can speak to our hearts this morning. We pray, Lord, that we would have hope this morning as we consider your glory at and above our own. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Before I read the text, just really want to touch on those two other uh, uh, pursuits of glory, the pursuit of the glory of myself. In Isaiah chapter one, Isaiah talks to his people and he talks about the Lord's rejection of their religious observances. They're often faithful religious observances. Why? Because they had become about themselves and the seeking of their own glory. It was clear, most clearly manifested in the fact that they no longer cared for the poor and the orphan and, and the widow and they just completely becomes consumed with themselves. And so God rejects even their worship. Maybe a better example comes from Luke chapter 12, and it's the parable of the man with the barns. Maybe you know it. Jesus tells, he talks about this man who has, uh, he's been so successful and he says kind of into himself, he says, you know, I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build bigger ones and I'm going to fill them. I'm paraphrasing here a little bit. I'm going to fill them with all my stuff and then I'm going to sit back and I'm going to enjoy life. And Jesus says to him, the Lord says to him, ultimately, you fool, tonight your very life will be demanded from you. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying if you built a barn this year and you put your stuff in it, you're going to die tonight. That's not the teaching of the scripture here. No, it's that this man became consumed with his own success and it was sort of glorifying himself. He'd become the center of his universe. He was the one who was preeminent. And ultimately, 
he ended up hopeless and his life ended as well. And when I seek the glory of myself, my world becomes very small. But what about seeking the glory of the created things or the creation? Again, be it relationships or material things or the pursuit of power or fame, whatever it much be, might be. Paul speaks about this a lot in Romans chapter one. He says that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worship the created thing rather than the creator. He says their foolish hearts became darkened. And Paul uses the, the illustration, the for instance, of our sexuality. He says that when the creation became the thing that was worshiped, that this good, great gift of God, our sexuality becomes twisted or perverted. And it never satisfies. It becomes an insatiable appetite. And that's true of anything that we elevate to the place of God, anything that we seek to glorify. That's the little that we'll spend on those negative examples this morning because this entire psalm is consumed with the glory of God. And I'm gonna read it to you at this time. You can read along in the screen or in your, in your Bible. David says this, I exalt you, my God, the King, and bless your name forever and ever. I will bless you every day. I will praise your name forever and ever. The Lord is great and highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. I will speak of your splendor and glorious majesty and your wondrous works. They will proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring acts and I will declare your greatness. They will give a testimony of your great goodness and will joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in faithful love. The Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. All you have made will thank you, Lord. The faithful will bless you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and will declare your might, informing all people of your mighty acts and of the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule is for all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his actions. The Lord helps all who fall. He raises up all who are oppressed. All eyes look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all his acts. The Lord is near all who call out to him, all who call out to him with integrity. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry for help and saves them. The Lord guards all those who love him, but he destroys all the wicked. My mouth will declare the Lord's praise. Let every living thing bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen. May God add a special blessing this morning to the reading of his holy word. Well, we're going to look at a very simple structure of Psalm 145, but I want to just point out the Hebrew structure, the original structure with which this psalm is written. In fact, if you scroll to the very bottom of the bulletin, if you're on your phone, past the group questions and so forth, you'll see I've just inserted the original structure of this psalm. You see, this psalm of David is carefully 
uh, constructed in its content, but also in its structure. It's a powerful psalm in that it must have taken him hours. It's a Hebrew acrostic. And so each stanza of the psalm begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet proceeding successively throughout. Now, those of you that are uh, Bible geeks and, and get into this sort of stuff, you will probably catch me on the fact that in, in some of the oldest manuscripts, the Hebrew letter nun or the N is missing and was inserted in some older manuscripts like the Septuagint, the pre-Christian Greek translation of the Old Testament. But nonetheless, there are enough manuscripts that we could, uh, we could say that it is a full acrostic uh, in addition to its substructure, which is Hebrew parallelism. We've talked about Hebrew parallelism, but just by way of reminder, Hebrew parallelism is a structure where the outside verses relate to each other and the psalm actually progresses in terms of its depth of meaning or the apex of its meaning toward the center. And the center is the high point in the psalm. And so we have a, a two-verse introduction and a single-verse conclusion in verses 1 and 2 and verse 21 respectively that both speak of the eternality of the glory of God. And then there are four stanzas, two of each which relate to each other, and we reach the apex in the middle of the psalm. We'll touch on that a little bit, but we're going to look at a much more linear, simple structure uh, this morning as we look at this psalm of David uh, in our meditation this morning. As we consider the glory of God as king, we're going to look at the glory of his works, the glory of the works of God in the first seven verses of the psalm. And then we're going to look at the glory of his virtues in verses 8 through about the first half of verse 13. And finally, we'll conclude with the glory of his redemption, the glory of his redemption. So let's look at his works first and, and note what David says here in the first seven verses. He begins in, in verse 1 with, I exalt you, Lord, and jumping down to verse 3 and talks about his greatness is unsearchable. And then we get into verse 4. He says his works and he uh, will proclaim his mighty acts, verse 4, his wondrous works, verse 5, his awe-inspiring acts in verse 6. And ultimately, he says his righteousness at the end of verse seven. So five or six times, David talks about the works of God and he praises, proclaims, and declares God's works. This is sort of the generic term for all that God does, for his superintending of the universe and his creative power and so forth. He praises him for his works. And I wonder when is the last time that you and I sat down or in our prayer life and just listed the great works of God through human history, through redemptive history, through our own histories and what God has done and just said, God, I praise you for your works, for what you have done. David praises God for his works, the glory of the works of God. The next section looks at the glory of the virtues of God, as David talks about his graciousness and his compassion, his faithful love. There's that word chesed in the Hebrew that means faithful, loyal love. It's translated as loving kindness in some of your translations. He talks again about God's compassion and then down to verse 13 about his faithfulness and, and graciousness. He highlights the virtues of God. Matter of fact, a lot of what David is doing here is hinted at at the end of verse seven where he says he praises him for his righteousness. 
You may remember that the word righteousness in the Old Testament encapsulates both the idea of God's nature, his character, his makeup, and his acts, his deeds, what he does. Both of those things are, are embodied in the word righteousness. And so in a very real sense, what David is doing is he's, he's taking that word apart and he's spending some time focusing on the acts of God, the deeds of God, the works of God in his righteousness. And then he's spending some time focusing on the attributes and the nature and the character of God in his righteousness. But that composite whole is what he is lifting up. There's a great application for you and I in this, uh, in this section, in these two sections, is that we as a church ought to be a people who speak and sing the glory of God, both in who he is and what he does. If you want to see how emphatic this is, listen to the verbs throughout the entire section. Listen to what, and notice the liturgy of it. David will say uh, uh, as the worship leader something on his individual behalf, and then he speaks of the behalf of the congregation, leading them through this praise of who God is and what he does. He says this, he says, I will exalt you, verse one. One generation will declare, verse four, one generation will declare and will proclaim, verse five, I will speak, your wondrous works. They will proclaim, I will declare, they will give a testimony and will joyfully sing. Down in the next section, we will speak of the glory of your kingdom, declare your might, and so forth. Some of your versions there will say in in verse uh, seven, the beginning of verse seven, joyfully sing will be substituted for the word celebrate. And so the people of God here, the Jews, would both speak and sing and act out and celebrate the goodness of God, the glory of God and who he is and what he does. Matter of fact, this particular psalm amongst observant Jews later would be recited twice in the morning and once in the evening. It's that foundational to them. Remember we said it's a perspective psalm that they would recite it three times a day. The works of God, the virtues of God, the righteousness of God. And so are we a people who speak and sing of the goodness and glory of God, both in who he does, uh, who he is intrinsically and what he does extrinsically, if you will. Well, I want to just spend a a minute or two on verse eight, because verse eight is a profound uh, sort of um, reach back to the oldest interactions of God in the Old Testament. It's something we talked about. If you were here in September, when I returned from my time away on sabbatical, we shared from Exodus and we talked about this verse and this language is lifted right from uh, the pages of the Torah itself. And it says this in verse eight, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in faithful love or loving kindness. And in this verse, again, is quoted directly God's words to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. You may remember the story. Moses has asked to see or to behold the glory of God. And so God, in his uh, love, great love of Moses, he sort of tucks him in this cleft of a rock and he passes by him and he covers him and he passes by him and he allows Moses to see the rear of his glory, as it were. And then he makes this declaration about himself. He said, I, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness or loving faithfulness or faithful lover, chesed. It is the primary attributes of God, of his, his great grace and mercy toward us. And we talked about in that message how the scripture never says that God is, has to be provoked to love and mercy and grace and compassion. 
What God does not say to Moses is that I am God exacting and, and just or righteous and, and, uh, and whatever other descriptor you can think of. He says, I am gracious and compassionate. He is a God who does not need to be provoked to love, but he does, in fact, the scripture teaches over and over through the prophets, he is provoked to wrath. He is provoked to judgment. And yet we are the opposite. Hebrews teaches that we are easily moved to anger, to wrath, to judgment. But we need to be provoked to love and mercy. Aren't you glad, aren't you glad this morning that we don't serve a God who is like us in our sin in the way that we respond to life? He needs no provocation to love. It is by definition who he is. He is gracious, merciful, and compassionate. He is righteous. So are we a people that speaks and sings of the great glory of God and who he is and what he does? And I think by large part we are. That's what we spent all of Advent doing. It's what we spent Christmas Eve doing. And I hope that that has spilled over into your, to your own life. Certainly, I hope that that's true of my own life. And so I, I want to sort of tie together, if you will, where we've just come. And we just were here on Thursday night celebrating the birth of Christ. And where we're headed as we move toward Vision Sunday next week, looking into the new year, what does the Lord have for us? That we would always be about heralding the gospel in both realities. So check out this short video. Why? 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 Why did Jesus come to earth? Why did Jesus Why come forsake to earth? the majesty and fellowship of heaven? Why forsake the majesty Exchanging and fellowship of heaven? Exchanging a palace for a stable. Exchanging Immortal a palace comforts for a stable. For a feeding trough. Immortal and robes of glory for, for the feeble body of an and infant. robes of glory for the feeble body an of an unparalleled infant. irony. This supreme, an unrivaled nobility, experiencing absolute and total humility. Experiencing absolute and total Our sovereign humility. God, Emmanuel. Our sovereign God as a baby, Emmanuel. He didn't come to heap shame upon sinners. Or to judge and cast out the impious, but to break bread with those called unrighteous. But to break bread with those called unrighteous. He didn't come to illuminate every mystery of the cosmos. He didn't come or to enlighten the intellectual, but to fulfill the testimony of the prophets. He didn't come to elevate a single nation. He didn't come to elevate a single nation or to advocate a particular political affiliation. He came because he saw you broken in need of salvation. He saw you lost and abandoned, crying out, surrounded by deaf ears, fighting through the tears, but beaten down by the torments of this world. And unable to bear your distress, he renounced his eternal throne, walked the earth, bore the stripes, accepted the nails, and gave up his last breath so that you could receive the breath of life. Our God. Our holy, infinite God. Beheld your pain. Perceived your heart. And determined that your soul was worth dying for. From the manger 
to the cross, to the empty tomb. It is all a story of profound love, of a savior who rescued his children from darkness. Of a blameless king who declared that no sacrifice was too great for the sake of his beloved creation. Why did Jesus come to earth? He came for you. Amen. Amen. You know, it's, it's amazing how that moves us to this next section, and it's the glory of God's redemption. Listen to, to what the psalmist says, what David says. He says, verse 14, the Lord helps all who fall. He raises up the oppressed. He gives them their food at the proper time. He opens his hand. He satisfies the desire of every living thing. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry. He guards all those who love him and he destroys all the wicked. I listened to one, to one uh, message on this Psalm where the, the preacher said, how we know this is a Psalm of David is because he eventually gets to the destroying of the wicked. And this is what David always, where he always lands in his own wrestlings. But, but we need that promise in a, in, a, in, in a Psalm on the hope of God's glory. Why? If you have faced injustice this week, this month in your lifetime that's never been answered, if you are currently in circumstances of injustice, the reminder that we serve a God who is going to put everything to right, that he does indeed punish the wicked is part of his redemption in the deepest care of those that he loves. And that's you and me to the praise and glory of God. And so we come to the glory of his redemption. What is the response of the hopeful this morning to the glory of God's redemption? What is the response of the hopeful? Well, I hope this morning that we can draw an application from this like that of the Jews who recited this three times a day that we would know, read, memorize, sing, and repeat God's word, not only as a community, as we talked about earlier, but as individuals, that God's word would have a place prominent in our lives. As we conclude 2020, as we begin to think and look at 2021. Remember that the psalmist begins with, I will exalt your name, God the King, and bless your name forever and ever. He ends it with, bless his holy name forever and ever. He focuses on the eternality of God and, and of his word. It reminded me this week of uh, one of the great adversaries of Christianity, the French Enlightenment philosopher and author Voltaire. And if you know anything of Voltaire, and I've read very little, but one of his most famous declarations is that the Bible would be gone within 100 years of his lifetime, that the only Bible that he would be able to find would be in a museum, which you, where you could view it for the purposes of antiquity alone. And you know what's particularly fascinating is that the chair that Voltaire made many of his declarations about resides in a museum in France today. It's as if the very seat of the words of Voltaire is in a museum, but the seat of the words of God, if you will, endures from generation to generation, David says. Amen? Amen. Amen. Hope and glory. 
we are the beneficiaries of giving God the glory that is due his name. We actually reap the benefits. When we glorify ourselves, our world becomes very small. When we glorify the creation, we are perpetually disappointed. But when we glorify him, we have hope in all things. And there's this great twist of that idea in Paul's letter to Titus. It's where we're going to begin next week. And so it really anticipates Vision Sunday. Listen to what Paul says and note the language about hope and glory. He says this. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous and godly way in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the glory of God is our hope, is what Paul says. Not only in glorifying God and focusing our life, this entire psalm is about singing and speaking the glory of God, but not only in focusing our lives on glorifying God do we have hope, but our very hope itself is his glory and his ultimate returning and reappearing. Final illustration this morning, and then we're gonna have a, a closing song. I'll ask Brandon if he wants to make his way up here now. Uh, our last illustration comes from the words of Jesus himself. Jesus gives this parable, the parable of the wise and foolish builders. He says, he who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man who builds his house on a rock, a firm foundation. This is what David is saying this morning. It's a foundational psalm. It's a perspective psalm. And so we're going to end this morning by singing an old hymn. Now, you may recognize some of the words because if you know Hillsong's Cornerstone, it takes the, link, the lyrics from this older hymn. And this hymn says this, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And you know, that second line has, a, there's a lot of speculation among hymnologists. What does this second line mean? The, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. There's a couple of different theories about what the hymn writer meant. And, and I like the one that, that talks about the sweetest frame in terms of a worldview. So that's the term we would use today. That the sweetest frame is a, it's a worldview. It's a framework by which we live life. It's a pursuit of how to live life that is alluring. It's desirable. It's, it's sweet. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Will you stand this morning as we conclude and sing this final song?
So glad you're with us this morning. Glad you tuned in today. I want to remind you this week that our offices will be closed here at GBC as we are giving the staff a break and allowing them a chance to, to rest and, and really be uh, refreshed before they come back. And I uh, also want to let you know that groups, uh, midweek groups, small groups, kids ministry, teen ministry will all be suspended the month of January and will begin and resume all of that in February. Some of that's a COVID decision and some of it's just kind of taking a break, regrouping a little bit. But I do want to let you know we're going to be launching a sort of all church four week Bible study that's going to be spearheaded by our associate pastor, Zach Stevens, and our women's ministry director, Amber Cameron, as sort of a stopgap. For those of you that are just really craving the community and continued study of the word in a smaller context, and so we'll have more about that uh, next week. We're excited about that series. Uh, Lastly, if you're new with us this morning, I want to encourage you to stop by the Welcome Center. If you're online or you're home, click the I'm New tab on our website. I hope you have a tremendous new year. Uh, Let's remember that that January 1 is not a magical, there's nothing magical about it. In some ways, it's just another day. And so let's look for the faithfulness of God uh, in the midst of whatever changes come. And let's be about speaking and singing of his glory. Amen? Amen. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.